Hello and welcome to this episode of Understanding Macbeth. My name is Gemma Nemeth and in this podcast we go through some of the key scenes from the play, translating the language, identifying literary techniques and useful quotes and analysing the characters, structure and themes of the play in order to help you prepare for your exams. If you want to access additional episodes and other exclusive content, you can find more information about the full online Macbeth course at www.advanceacademic.co.uk forward slash Macbeth hyphen course. And if you listen until the end of today's episode, you will get a discount code for 20% off. Now let's get started with today's episode. Act three, scene one. Act 3, scene 1 takes place at Macbeth's castle and starts with Banquo being suspicious of Macbeth. He says, Thou hast it now, king, cordor, glams, all, as the weird woman promised, and I fear thou playedst most foully for it. So he's saying that everything the witches said would happen to Macbeth has happened, but that he suspects that Macbeth has become king through some evil means. Note that the words fear and foully Give us that echo of fair and foul from Act 1, reminding the audience of the witch's constant supernatural influence over the events of the play. So on the one hand, Banquo comes across as quite a wise character here, because he has guessed what Macbeth is up to. On the other hand, he doesn't tell anyone about his suspicions. Now that may just be out of fear, because he doesn't know who is trustworthy anymore. But given what he says next, there might also be more sinister reasons that Banquo doesn't want to tell anybody about the witches and their prophecies. He starts talking about the prophecy that was made about him, that he would be the root and father of many kings. Note that it was believed that James I, who was the king at the time the play was first performed, was a descendant of the real Banquo, and so the suggestion that Banquo's sons will be kings is a nod to this belief. Banquo says... The verities on thee made good. May they not be my oracles as well and set me up in hope? Meaning that because the prophecies they made about Macbeth came true, well, surely the prophecy about him and his sons would also come true. So now we're starting to see an ambitious streak in Banquo. In fact, this line sounds similar to Macbeth in Act 1, after being made the Thane of Cawdor, when he says, Why hath it given me earnest of success commencing in a truth? So, in the same way that Macbeth was even more enamoured with the prophecy after the first part came true, Banquo is now starting to take more notice of the prophecy because the bits about Macbeth have come true. So, where previously Banquo has acted as a contrast or foil for Macbeth, it seems now that there is a bit of an overlap between them at this point. Banquo isn't so pure and humble that he doesn't care about whether his sons become kings or not, and this section makes it clear that he is hoping that they will. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth then enter with lords and attendants, and they put on a very elaborate and over-the-top show of politeness towards Banquo. Macbeth is already plotting his murder, but is trying to make it seem as though he desperately wants Banquo to come to the feast, calling him our chief guest. He is hoping that this will deflect any suspicion away from him once Banquo has been killed. Banquo matches this level of courtesy and politeness by speaking respectful words of loyalty back to Macbeth when he says... Let your highness command upon me, to which my duties are with a most indissoluble tie, forever knit. Meaning that he is forever bound to Macbeth, and will be loyal to him. At this point, these two old friends, who used to trust each other, 
are both being false with each other, showing how much has changed since the start of the play. Notice also Macbeth's attempt at casually questioning Banquo during the conversation in order to find out more information that he can use to plot his murder. For example, he asks, Is it far you ride? And goes Fleance with you? So he is sneakily gathering information that he can pass on to the murderers that he is going to send after Banquo. Macbeth then has another soliloquy, and we can see how much his mindset has changed from earlier soliloquies. When we previously got insight into Macbeth's thoughts, it was to show how conflicted and guilty he felt. But now this soliloquy showcases his fear and paranoia that his newfound power might be taken away from him. In the last act, we saw how Macbeth felt guilty about killing Duncan, but now he's already prepared to kill his trusted friend, Banquo, and doesn't show any signs of being guilt-ridden. He starts off by saying, To be thus is nothing but to be safely thus. Meaning it's only worth being king if he can feel safe and secure as king, which at the moment he doesn't. The audience then learn why he currently doesn't feel that his hold on the crown is secure. He says, Our fears in Banquo stick deep. There is a double meaning here, as it suggests that Macbeth's fears about Banquo are embedded deep within him. But the phrase also has connotations of violence, because to stick can also mean to pierce or stab something. So this phrase also has those violent undertones, suggesting that Macbeth's fears are going to lead to Banquo being harmed, which is exactly what is about to happen. Macbeth then starts to talk about Banquo's qualities, such as his royalty of nature. Again, we have a double meaning here, because royalty of nature can just mean his goodness as a person but it can also mean the literal royalty, and is therefore suggestive of the fact that Banquo is destined to father kings, so royalty is in his nature. Macbeth also talks about Banquo's bravery and wisdom. It's interesting that Macbeth is talking about someone he's afraid of, and then listing all of these good qualities. It's as if he is so evil now that he's actually afraid of goodness. Macbeth then starts talking about the prophecy, and his anger and fear at the idea of Banquo's sons becoming kings. He says, Upon my head they placed a fruitless crown, and put a barren sceptre in my grip, thence to be wrenched with an unlineal hand, no son of mine succeeding. So his main frustration here is that fate has decided that he will be king, but he will have no heirs. He will be metaphorically fruitless. Shakespeare uses metonymy here, which is when you use a related word to refer to something instead of the actual word. Such as saying, this is the message from number 10, instead of this is the message from the Prime Minister. Obviously the message isn't literally from the building of number 10, it's just an expression meaning the Prime Minister, because he lives at number 10. In the same way, in this quote, the word crown is used to refer to Macbeth's reign as king. So he's been given a fruitless reign, but it is referred to as a fruitless crown. The crown and the scepter are both the symbols of his royalty and they are described as fruitless and barren. He is angry that these symbols of his royalty will therefore be taken away from him by Banquo's descendants rather than passed down to any of children of his own. Shakespeare uses that powerful verb wrenched to show Macbeth's fear that his power is going to be taken away from him by force, by an unlineal hand so a hand that is not of his bloodline, but of someone else's. 
He then says that if that is the case, everything he has done and gone through has essentially been to benefit Banquo's children. He says, For Banquo's issue have I filed my mind. For them, the gracious Duncan, have I murdered. Put rancours in the vessel of my peace, only for them, and mine eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man to make them kings. So let's just translate this quickly before we analyse it. He's saying, For Banquo's children, I have defiled or damaged my mind. For them, I murdered Duncan, who was a good person. I have ruined my ability to feel at peace, only for them, and given my soul to the devil, just to make them kings. So he is angry that he is going through all of that, and it won't even be any of his children that will benefit, because he's not going to have any. And he is annoyed that it's going to be someone else's children that would potentially benefit from his sacrifices. He says at first that his actions have filed my mind, meaning that they have poisoned or ruined his mind. So telling the audience that his mental state is very fraught and he's wounded by what he has done. He then talks about murdering Duncan and notice that this time he finally uses the word murdered rather than a euphemism. It seems like his anger is making him speak plainly and honestly. He then says he has put rancors in the vessel of my peace, which is a metaphor suggesting that his mind is like a vessel into which he has put malicious and hateful feelings. So again, letting the audience know about the damaged state of his mind at this point in the play. Then lastly, Shakespeare uses the metaphor of an eternal jewel to refer to Macbeth's soul and says Macbeth has given it to the common enemy of man, meaning the devil. So again, this is referring to the damnation that Macbeth has brought upon himself by killing King Duncan. At the end of the soliloquy, he says, come fate into the list and champion me to the utterance. So here we have apostrophe again, because he is addressing fate, which is an abstract concept rather than a character. And he is back to using imperatives, just like he did with the witches. It seems to be a character trait of Macbeth's that he is always trying to control forces that are bigger than him. He spoke in a very commanding way to the witches, even though they were more powerful than him. And now he's even trying to challenge fate. He is challenging fate to a battle, like a medieval fight to the death, because he doesn't want to allow fate to make Banquo's descendants kings. Macbeth's servant then brings in the two murderers he has been speaking to. It is clear from what he says that he has been working on convincing them that Banquo has wronged them and that they should murder him in revenge. He says, It was he in the times past which held you so under fortune. Meaning, it was Banquo who caused there to be so much misery and misfortune in your lives. Notice that Macbeth is now speaking in prose, not verse. He is trying to win over the two men and so he speaks more like them in order to relate to them and to persuade them. In the same way that Macbeth just spoke negatively about Banquo's good personality traits, he now talks about some good qualities in the men as if they are weaknesses. As part of his persuasion that they should kill Banquo, he says, Do you find your patience so predominant in your nature that you can let this go? Are you so gospeled to pray for this good man and for his issue, whose heavy hand hath bowed to you the grave and beggared yours for ever? So he's asking them these questions to try and make them feel shamed into committing the murder. He asks if they are so patient and forgiving and holy 
that they will not seek revenge on the man, Banquo, who has wronged them. And he makes these qualities sound like insults, as if they are not real men if they are patient and forgiving. He refers to them being gospeled, meaning, are they so influenced by the teachings of the gospels, such as turn the other cheek, that they will not seek revenge? So he's even suggesting that following Christian teachings about forgiveness is a sign of weakness and is unmanly. His techniques here clearly work because the first murderer replies with, we are men. Macbeth then starts to use some of the same techniques of manipulation on these two men that Lady Macbeth used on him. He challenges their masculinity so that they agree to do the deed. He tells them that, yes, they are part of the category of living things called men, but in the same way that all dogs, strong or useless, are called dogs, so all those who can be called men are not necessarily manly. Macbeth says it's the qualities of the dogs that matter, and it's the same with men. He says that if the two men are not right at the bottom of the list of men when it comes to being manly, and instead they have proper manly qualities, then he will tell them of a plan to help them get rid of their enemy, Banquo. The murderers both agree that they will kill Banquo and say they have been hardened by the difficulties they have faced in their lives. For example, the second murderer says he has had to endure the vile blows and buffets of the world. So even from these minor characters, we get the impression that the world of the play is one that is extremely harsh and full of difficulties. It is interesting to contrast Macbeth in this scene with the Macbeth from Act 1. In Act 1, Macbeth is responsible for many deaths in battle, but this was presented as noble because he was killing traitors, and he killed them himself by charging bravely into battle. Here, on the other hand, he is having to be cunning and is resorting to manipulation to get other people to do murder for him. Macbeth then gets the murderers to agree that Banquo was your enemy. And then we get a very sad moment where Macbeth says, so is he mine, meaning he is my enemy as well. Which of course isn't true. Banquo hasn't done anything to Macbeth, and in the play so far they have been good and loyal friends to each other. This serves to show how paranoid and delusional Macbeth has already become, because it's like he's managed to convince himself that Banquo is his enemy, and that Banquo wants to take his power away. Macbeth then explains that he cannot commit the murder himself, even though he is the king and has the power to do so, because he needs to be able to keep up appearances in front of the other characters, certain friends that are both his and mine, and therefore he will need to pretend to be shocked and upset by Banquo's death. He says he must wail his fool who I myself struck down, highlighting his deceitful and false behaviour. This makes Macbeth seem cold and heartless because he should be shedding genuine tears at Banquo's death as they were close friends, but instead he's planning that he will have to fake being upset, even though he's the one who ordered him to be murdered. Macbeth also wants to make sure that Banquo's son, Fleance, is murdered. He says, Fleance, his son that keeps him company, whose absence is no less material to me than his father's, must embrace the fate of that dark hour. So saying that it's just Im as important to him that Fleance dies too. Notice that he is back to using euphemisms to hide the horror of what he is really saying. He refers to Fleance's absence rather than his murder or his death. 
The murderers agree to murder Banquo and Fleance and exit the stage. Macbeth then says, It is concluded. Banquo, thy soul's flight, if it find heaven, must find it out tonight. We can see that Macbeth's conscience is bothering him a lot less about Banquo's murder than it did about Duncan's. That short statement, it is concluded, gives a feeling of finality. There is no doubt in him. This contrasts sharply to all the toing and froing he did in his mind when he was deciding whether or not to kill Duncan. This demonstrates to the audience the extent of his downfall now, because he seems to find killing easier now than he did before, even though he is closer to Banquo than he was to Duncan. Thank you for listening to Understanding Macbeth. I hope this was helpful for you in deepening your understanding of the play and getting you ready for your exams. If you want to access additional episodes and other exclusive content, you can find more information about the full online Macbeth course at www.advanceacademic.co.uk forward slash Macbeth hyphen course. And as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off any of the course packages by quoting the code MacbethPod. That's M-A-C-B-E-T-H-P-O-D. You can also reach out to me there about private tuition, revision support, and my practice paper marking service. Until next time, goodbye and happy studying.